level up your hunting game and join the cause. Help preserve small town Texas hunting culture and become a more successful hunter by learning the best ways to squeeze the most out of your budget and precious time out in the field. Welcome to the Feed Bandit Podcast. Here are your resident bandits, Richard Kinchlow and Jimmy Byrne. Howdy folks, welcome back to the Feed Bandit Podcast. Jimmy here. thought we'd uh, continue our uh, discussion about uh, the book, The Hunter's Haunch, What You Don't Know About Deer and Venison That Will Change the Way You Cook. I think it's, uh, again, continue with this discussion as it's appropriate now that it is uh, deer season in full force down here in Texas and most elsewhere. So let's go ahead and uh, dive in and see what it has for us. Going wild, getting to wild meat. The hunting question. In modern society, hunting is the sort of activity that raises hackles as well as eyebrows. Why hunt for food? The urban sophisticate wonders when there's a grocery store on every corner and restaurants lining the streets. There are lots of ways to respond to that question, but recent books on hunting typically argue that subsistence hunting itself restores a kind of essentialist balance between man and nature. To hunt, the argument goes, allows Homo sapiens to re-enter the world as an engaged being who needs all five senses to connect with nature, which includes chasing it down and celebrating its life by serving it up for supper. At the other end of the spectrum, generational hunters will shake their heads at such nonsense, wipe off their hands on their pants, and go straight for the jugular as they chop off Bambi's head. The former tends to, quote, Ortega y Gasset and Brillant Severin, best known for the sobriquet, tell me what you eat and I will tell you who you are. The latter drowns all doubts in hotter than hell barbecue sauce and thinks toilet paper is for sissies. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, neither ex- existential ennui nor high standards of personal hygiene will rescue your venison if you've approached it the wrong way. And that wrong way still has to do with belief systems. They're just belief systems regarding the limits of edibility. I'm often asked if venison is safe to consume, as if hand-caught food was inherently germy, full of stealthy bacteria eager to invade weak and foolish immune systems. Those are cultural expectations talking, meaning there's nothing natural about those fears. Rather, they're the product of two centuries worth of cultural narratives pushing wildness out of everyday life as an insult to polite society. A good example of the success of these narratives is Joe Robinson's Eating on the Wild Side from 2013, which has nothing to do with hunting for wild meat or foraging for wild plants. It's a guidebook for picking up the most nutritious fruits and vegetables at the grocery store. Robinson is disappointed by the average vegetable's low levels of Phytonutrients, which are plant-based chemicals such as ephedrine and lycopene, just think antioxidants, which are like electrolytes. In other words, they're naturally occurring chemicals that make certain plants beneficial for humans. So her book leaves out dairy, fish, poultry, and meat, as none of these animal-based food sources has phytonutrients. They can't. This is because fish, birds, and mammals are not plants. Animals don't have roots or leaves and their cells do not derive energy via photosynthesis, which is the process leading to the phyto, meaning green, and phytonutrients. Animal animal protein does have amino acids and B vitamins, 
but Robinson isn't interested in these things. Me neither. It's now commonplace to argue for dietary choices using nutritional claims with quote-unquote empty calories being akin to moral bankruptcy and quote high nutritional value in quote being the best investment of your grocery money. But I'm not persuaded by the it's good for you argument because most food is good for you, even the food that's supposedly bad. Having nothing to eat is the real trouble for a good chunk of people on the planet. Sure, venison is an all-natural, low-fat source of high-quality protein, but so are snails and earthworms. If an optimal ratio of calories to nutritional value was a primary motive for food choices, then beetles and other insects ought to be on special this week at Whole Foods. Instead, when half of an inchworm shows up in the last bite of an organic heirloom apple, it's grounds for a lawsuit. On every level, the relationship of man to meat is more complex than simply deciding that wild is bad and domesticated is good, or vice versa. Real life is messy, and claiming the moral high ground regarding the rightness of certain foods ignores the sheer difficulties of eating well in the contemporary world. In the desert, there is insufficient water for crops. In the Arctic, the growing season is too short, etc. Where humans can survive, so can other mammals. But crops? Not necessarily. Agricultural control contributes to the health of the marketplace, but is not always to the benefit of humans as a species. The negative effect of a, excuse me, the negative effects of the long-term manipulation of cultivars is partly Robinson's fault, or partly Robinson's point, as we have bred fruits and vegetables for looks instead of flavor, and created fruits so sweet that they now cause diabetes. Dutifully now, journalists raise the alarm about lowered levels of phytonutrients and point out the deception of cute farms that are actually mega-corporate in industries. But there's nothing sexy about soil depletion from overplanting, or the fact that the thousands of acres of fields planted with amber waves of grain exist at the expense of the wildlife. But because these realities are true, none of us are morally pure in this food business. If you eat, you're swallowing a life, and that maybe even a soul, and that goes for vegetarians too. That uncomfortable truth got to be such a conundrum for Thoreau that he pretty much decided that no eating of anything whatsoever should be allowed. He associated meat with uncleanliness, but concluded that abstinence from food of any kind was the pathway to transcendence. For those who prefer not to starve to death, it's more practical to acknowledge that humans participate inside a food ecosystem and to face it without excuses or pretense. Yeah, so I doubt any of us listening to this podcast here uh, have any, you know, qualms, as, at least as far as uh, moral qualms with hunting. That's why you're listening. That's all why we love hunt, uh, hunting. But we all, of course, uh, when we're out there and we take an animal, we do our best to put it down as soon as possible, hopefully in one shot, one arrow, what have you, hope. And hopefully it goes down really fast or pretty, you know, as fast as possible so that there's no suffering or any of that, anything of that nature. But, you know, I guess the point being that, you know, humans are not somehow, uh, you know, completely distinct or separate from the overall ecosystem of the, of the earth, which I think is a bit point that is missed by a lot of the anti-hunters and uh, folks that tend to view plants as not having feelings, so let's only eat them. But uh, I'm curious what uh, you know, anyone out there's thought is about the, the subject. Um, you know, it's 
it is what it is. We have to eat. Humans are on top of the food chain. So there you have it. <laughs> but let's continue. Hunting versus harvesting. In the introduction to A Hunter's Heart, Honest Essays on Bloodsport, 1997, David Peterson railed against the harvesting of deer and other wild animals. He didn't object to hunting. He objected to the word harvesting. One of the country's most respected advocates of backcountry hunting, Peterson thought that this ugly word exposed the meanest, cruelest human attitude to nature, for it reduced the relationship between man and animals to an economic equation. The equation is bad for the wildlife because the concept of harvesting meat traces its roots back to the wide-scale implementation of the slaughterhouse system, a French and British institution perfected in the United States. The slaughterhouse is the invention of a 19th century middle class that disdained the smells and sounds of farm animals. Initially, the public objected to the loss of hand-butchered beef, but, but was gradually won over by the ready, ready availability of inexpensive fresh meat in the name of public hygiene. The cleanliness that Thoreau obsessed over. In the United States, the slaughterhouse is also called an abattoir. This word comes from the French word abattre, a forestry term that referred to cutting down trees. When the term migrated to the military, it referred to cows being felled to feed hundreds of hungry troops. With the rise of the slaughterhouse, the term became fully aligned with what ethnographer Noel Viales called a vegetalized vision of livestock. Inside this Excuse me, inside this vision, livestock is not slaughtered but harvested in the manner of trees cut down in the woods. It would be easy to dismiss Peterson's dislike of harvesting as prissiness. Fruit is harvested, wheat is harvested, berries are harvested, and now meat is harvested. Boo-hoo. Who cares? Since it all, since it all does it make, make it harder for tree huggers to justify their anti-hunting views. But when slaughter is practiced on an industrial scale, the animal becomes reduced to meat on the hoof. Not a life, but a set of losses and profits inside the stock market. Livestock animals used to hold a variety of roles, providing milk, muscle, and manure. Their life, as well as their death, reflected pragmatic considerations related to the harsh realities of single-family farming. A century later, the animal's central role inside an agricultural economy has vanished from consumer consciousness. The palate now favors the mishmash that is ground beef, a grind for the daily grind. Bits of prime rib, shoulder, brisket, shank, and gristle, from high to low, expensive to cheap. The scraps of classed cuts are rendered indistinguishable, making ground beef the most politically optimistic of meats, and the hamburger the most egalitarian of meals. The cow's age and gender have also vanished from the meat in the supermarket shelves, replaced by labels warning best if sold by as the only dates that matter. To all extents and purposes, livestock animals are now farmed in the same manner as staple crops, grown in mass quantities, harvested by machines, and packaged in a factory. This system, it is claimed, is better than hand slaughter and makes subsistence hunting obsolete for consumers who have never had to face a living animal in order to obtain meat. From the consumer's perspective, there is no blood, no confrontation with death, and no mess to clean. Therefore, it is more civilized. As it passes through the system, the cow is stunned, bled, gutted, skinned, hung, cooled, butchered, and shrink-wrapped. But at no step in the, in the sequence does it officially die. The first step, stunning, 
doesn't kill but renders it unconscious. For two, when it is bled, blood drains best when the heart is still beating. And three, gutting is not immediately lethal, neither is skinning, number four. At some point along the way, the cow certainly dies, but according to the logic of the machine, the person who dooms the cow, the pig, or the chicken, is kindly grandpa on overalls who allowed their conception in the first place. As a reporter, as reporter Christopher Leonard established in The Meat Racket, 2014, the slaughterhouse system extends to nearly every farm and grocery store in present-day America, the meat production of which is controlled by just four conglomerates. Of these four, Tyson Foods slaughters 135,000 head of cattle, 391,000 hogs, and 41 million chickens every week. The numbers are staggering, yet how this happens remains invisible, and despite Leonard's work, unthinkable. The critiques are as old as the system itself and have had no effect. Over time, the system is merely strengthened. Though it would appear that the vegan rather than the hunter is the archenemy of this meatpacking machine, veganism is actually a direct extension of the factory farming system. <clears throat> By demanding year-round supplies of fruits and vegetables, consumers are transformed produce into product. Try growing wheat in the backyard and see how far the crop goes towards homemade flour for pasta, bread, pancakes, waffles, muffins, cookies, and pie crusts. Or try growing apples in winter, or tomatoes in the desert, etc. To be able to eat what you want, when you want it, is a consequence of economic power and social technologies that are the true nature of natural food. In, the, in a popular wartime supplement cookbook published between wars, World War I and World War II, and again during the Great Depression, the mystery chef laid it out plainly. At least 10,000 people help you prepare each meal, he noted, and these people are working class and thus invisible to those doing the eating. To explain, the mystery chef, a Scotsman who moved from London to New York, did what Michael Pollan repeated 70 years later. He traced one ingredient from field to plate. Instead of corn, the mystery chef followed wheat. He goes, The farmer has planted the seed and it has grown to maturity, a waving field of golden grain in the northwest. First there are the men who sowed and cultivated the grain, and then the threshing machines and the men who run them. Now the trucks are hauling the wheat to a ship in the Great Lakes. Follow that ship, watch the stokers as they shovel coal, and don't forget the miners who mine the coal which drives the ship's engines. The ship carries the grain to a great flour mill with its roaring machinery, and here a vast number of men is employed. Then there are the cotton pickers in the south who pick the cotton that feeds the looms that weave the sacks in which the flour is put. And there are the printers who print the name on the sack in order that you and I may be able to recognize the brand of the flour that we want, an important service since all flowers are not alike. <laughs> this step, he added, was followed by the railway men, nowadays mostly truckers, who brought the sacks to town. These shipments merely dropped off the sacks. A whole host of people had to unload the train cars, stock the warehouses, set the flour on the shelves, and finally sell it to, consume, to customers. The mystery chef didn't mention that those tens of thousands of men contributing to this ordinary item exterminated millions of wheat-eating mice, sparrow, sparrows, groundhogs, weevils, beetles, grubs, etc., so that there was flour to sell in the first place. Annoyingly, flour is but one of six ingredients required to make biscuits, which also require butter, buttermilk, baking powder, salt, and an oven. 
Now ponder the pathway for baking powder and try baking pancakes, biscuits, or cake without it. Repeat this thought experiment with butter, buttermilk, salt, and gasoline electricity. This is why readers were cautioned that the Mystery Chef's cookbook was explicit, for he offered unsentimental discussions of the origins of that lovely hominid, hominid la Americaine, this being a hilarious French recipe for lobster, American style. To draw a straight line from thousands of poor workers to the blushing crustacean on your plate was in very bad taste. Offensive, really. Hence, Mystery Chef. No names, so his crude talk wouldn't embarrass his poor mother. Ethical hunters do not, do not deny these conditions, which some call a devil's bargain, and others call, quote, real life. Instead, they face them directly, taking legal responsibility for the death of a single wild animal for the purposes of transforming it into venison. In this sense, the hunter is anachronistic because he is a craftsman, participating in a traditional culture that requires a certain degree of innate talent, a lengthy apprenticeship, the mastery of specialized tools, and loyalty to an ethic based on intrinsic values rather than designer labels. That goes to what I was talking about, how when we look at taking an animal, you know, we take it ethically and as quickly as possible because it is important to us. It is, it's very important to that animal. It's important to us to respect those animals that are out there and to pass on down, pass down that ethic to those that follow us. On the socioeconomic plane, this is why so many Americans think of hunters as backwards conservatives who cling to outmoded ways. On the cultural plane, however, it also explains why a 2014 survey conducted by the British website femalefirst.com revealed that women voted chef the sexiest possession profession for men in a country where hunting is traditionally practiced by the aristocracy. And many prestigious chefs forage and hunt wild food to serve their worldly clientele. Like the word hunter, chef is an artisanal occupation strongly aligned with male practitioners and deadly weapons. The activity is sexy because it absorbs the dangerous rawness of the real, you know, the whole fish at the dock, the ethnic markets filled with strange fruits, the face-to-face encounter with the stag, and artfully transforms it through the suave refinements of gastronomy. Poached trout and lemon sauce, puree of pomegranate, urban-crested medallions of venison. The social value of their masculine practitioners resides in their ability to pivot between two worlds, one wild and the other tame. On the importance of knowing what you're trying to accomplish. Christopher McCandless, the young man who undertook a misguided quest to get away from civilization by fleeing to Alaska, ended up accomplishing, accomplishing the exact, excuse me, accomplishing exactly the opposite by ultimately infiltrating every mall in America. Unprepared for the rigors of an Alaskan winter, McCandless died, but the story of his brief life became John Krakauer's best-selling book, Into the Wild, and then a successful Hollywood film. As romantic as the fate may seem to college kids living in their parents' basement, his death was pointless. Alaskans knew immediately that McCandless had no chance of surviving in the backcountry, for he was under-equipped, inexperienced, and had such poor knowledge of woodcraft that he couldn't tell the difference between two large wild animals that, if correctly hunted, butchered, and preserved, could have ensured his survival. 
There's a big difference between a, a moose and a caribou, Hunter Gordon Samuel told Krakauer. A real big difference. You'd have to be pretty stupid not to be able to tell them apart. It was on a moose hunt that Samuel stumbled upon stumbled, stumbled onto McCandless's frozen body. A few years later, Samuel ended up shot dead by Alaska State Troopers, making headlines as that guy from Into the Wild who found himself in a drunken car chase through that town where Sarah Palin used to be mayor. <laughs> the chan- chain of events leading up to Samuel's death was inexorable, if not inevitable, which was true of McCandless's unhappy end as well. But if Samuel's death, death in Wasilla was unambiguous and swift, McCandless died alone in the woods, and it's still unclear what happened. In 2013, Krakauer provided an update regarding McCandless's cause of death, providing a rather fascinating account of his attempts to prove that the culprit was wild potato seeds. But why was McCandless eating these seeds in the first place? Ingesting wild plants of any kind without deep local knowledge is such a risky proposition that most wilderness manuals written by people with years of practice, such as Michael Hawk, author of the Green Beret Survival Manual, advise strongly against it. The larger point is that our brooding hero seemed to have been trying to recover a state of primitive purity, seeking to live out a life somehow better than a dystopian future with a for sale sign on every corner. But even when he was physically in the woods, his head was still in the suburbs. It is a common phenomenon. Hence the dream of returning to the forest is worth examining here because bits of it tend to find their way into the current interest in foraging and hunting among disenchanted urbanites, tangling with motives and muddying the task at hand. As far as I'm concerned, this task is not to escape modern life or fight inner demons, but to feed oneself off the fat of the land. To succeed, the head must be in the same place as the feet. For seasoned hunters, one shot, one kill. Excuse me, before I go on to that paragraph, I saw that movie. I'm sure most of you listening out there saw the movie Into the Wild. And it, as I was watching that, it occurred, it just, I could not help but wonder, you know, well, how did this kid go so wrong? I mean, how, or how did he not realize or have any idea that what he was doing was not going to be, not going to end well. You know, I mean, I thought the, the movie did a good job of, uh, of showing that, uh, showing, you know, basically it, the, the movie is good in the sense that I like how it expands your thinking about like a wild wonder and adventure and whatnot. But it also shows that, you know, a certain piece of you should probably be, a little uh, careful about how you go about doing that. You know, I don't know. That's just kind of what I took away from it. So for seasoned hunters, one shot, one kill is both a hunting philosophy and a culinary imperative. To accept this blunt claim means dispensing with the image of naked warriors running after their supper. These deers always seem to be bounding through the dappled woods as sunshine beams through the canopies of green, and heaven holds its breath as a hunter draws back a string, and zing, the arrow flies straight and true, and so the deer falls. Naturally, there's no blood. These cliches inform the 18th century British, British image on the following page of a Brazilian tribesman hunting with bow and arrow. With one well-placed shot, a Brazilian hunter has taken down a burdened flight. The hunter is male, young, hale, and healthy, surrounded by rejoicing women and flourishing coconut trees. This image is not unique. There are many more like it, 
all conveying variations of the same thing, telling the story that long ago, man flourished in a state of primitive simplicity, using weapons he crafted himself, living in nature, and feeding himself and his family off the bountiful land. The two standing figures are secular Adam and Eve, and an Eden, Eden so forgiving that they didn't even need to bring modesty. Amplify this image a hundred times via television where shows and films where Indians on horseback are hunting deer with bow and arrow, and it becomes easy to recognize the persistence of certain myths linked to hunting. The latest entry is Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games, who shoots rabbits from a hundred yards with a recurved bow. This sort of nonsense makes it seem that a bow hunter could, could pick off a small flying target and still be left with meat to eat once it landed on its loincloth. Or, in Katniss's case, her pouch. Thus, the method seems less cruel, more authentic, and therefore better than using rifles, shotguns, or heavy forfin, and or heaven forfin, an AR-15. <laughs> the dreaded AR-15. Shouldn't today's hunters stick to bow and arrow then, since the rule one shot, one kill, kill clearly worked using this simple weapon? Uh, no. Unfortunately, what Katniss actually represents is a set of myths regarding the noble savage. Same goes for the Brazilians in this British image. The problem with such myths is that these particular savages are, aren't so noble. They're cannibals. The haunch twirling on the spit of is a human leg and one of the bones cast off from their ghastly lunch is a human skull. Just to be clear, 18th century South American tribespeople were not cannibals. They worried that the European explorers invading their territory were man-eaters coming to roast them for supper. Despite the factual inaccuracies that anthropologists have energetically refuted regarding the culinary quirks of Catholic missionaries, the nagging belief persists that somewhere in the Amazons, relentless men with strange haircuts go hunting for gullible humans to throw into hellfire and brimstone. For similar reasons, the belief also persists that it's easy to bring down a flying bird using a hand-strung bow with homemade arrows with stone tips, and that roasting meat over a spit is a great way to prepare large cuts for a feast. In reality, it's exceptionally difficult to shoot a bird in flight using a bow and arrow, and roasting over a spit is a terrible method of cooking wild meat. When early English and European explorers crossed the ocean to experience the North American woods, they weren't tourists hoping to sample the local cuisine. They were on a mission for the Pope and the Hudson's Bay Company. There were no roads, no restaurants, and no prepackaged food. They trekked with the assumption there would be fresh wildlife to keep their bellies full. They hunted along the way, seemingly without much preparation and with great confidence that the Lord would provide. However, they had a few things in their favor, starting with the fact that there were five billion fewer humans on the planet and a great deal more wildlife. Many explorers died horribly en route, but we remember the fortunate ones that not only survived their ambitious treks, but wrote memoirs about them. These men include Hanbury, but also Samuel Hearn, George Back, Warburton Pike, John Hornby, J.B. Tyrell, and others whose remarkable accounts of trekking as far as Atlantic, or, Atlantic Circle, as far as far as the Arctic Circle, deserve to be rescued from obscurity. When they did make it across the Barrens and other difficult terrains without obvious forage, they typically did so with the repeated help of indigenous peoples who rescued them when they got in trouble. Yeah, it's very interesting to 
just as an aside here, to go back and read about actual histories and not the cartoonish history that has uh, supplied us in a lot of movies and a lot of stories that are told and whatnot. Uh, so I'd, I'd, I'd recommend folks maybe try to uh, find some find some good books about what really went on back there. Now, at the same time, there was still, obviously, the conflict uh, with the natives was a, a big deal. And, you know, all that did happen. It was just more, I think, nuanced than the cookie-cutter uh, history that we're all told uh, in our, you know, in our school indoctrinations. So, anyway, that's <laughs> just a quick side. So, they got in trouble a lot. Hanbury, for instance, instance, described Canada as a land of plenty, where in spots there were so many deer that they didn't need to be hunted. They just walked right up to his tent and practically leapt into a stew pot. During leaner times, he noted, something good to eat always turned up. A wolverine, a fat wolf, a tharmogen, geese, plenty of fish, and muskos, ox. Things were going pretty well until the canoe got caught in the rapids of the Lockhart River and floated away. They recovered the canoe, but he and his party lost all other tools, including axes, rifles, guns, and nets. He went on to say, We were now without the means of procuring food, and were in the middle of a very rough country. Deer were plentiful, and stood stupidly staring at us with an easy range. Fish were leaping in the pools on the river, but the means of killing deer and taking fish were gone. Not an envious position, enviable position in which to find oneself. Though they had decades of first-hand experience and a wealth of accumulated knowledge, they had not—they had nothing to hunt with and no tools to make basic weapons. They didn't try to make their own bows and arrows because they knew better than to waste energy trying. For six days, he and his party survived by foraging cranberries and blueberries, which are safe to consume because they're easy to recognize and unmistakable at first taste. They did not attempt to eat wild potatoes or their seeds, elderberries, rhubarb, acorns, or other partly edible, partly poisonous plants. Berries were enough to keep them going until they were rescued by a tribe called the Yellow Knives. The Yellow Knives fed them, then sent them on their way with dried meat. Resupplied at the next outpost, the group was none, none the worse for wear, and so the trek continued. By the end of their expedition, after a year and a half of moving across the woods, they were completely accustomed to a diet that was wholly wild. Their hunts and catches extended over a range of species that Hanbury and his group had never tried before but found surprisingly palatable. To avoid rabbit starvation, they ate all the organs plus the blood and the marrow. To obtain greens, they ate the stomach contents of the ruminants they had hunted. Arriving at Fort Normal, which was, at, was the end of the story, Hanbury and his men were seated at a table for a civilized meal of bread and butter, potatoes, bacon, and the like. The first, the first of such meal in 20 months. To a man, the entire group ended up with a severe case of indigestion. It took him a week to readjust to farm food. The unhappy condition of the group's intestines challenged, challenges the easy assumption that the blandness of cultivars is superior to digesting a wolverine. Just as tellingly, Hanbury found himself wistful for life in the woods. He was able to gloss over the lean portions of his trek because, as he admitted cheerfully, he tended to view his excursions through rose-colored glasses. It was also because he'd known that he wasn't alone in the wilderness. Indeed, he had such confidence in the goodwill and hunting skills of various indigenous tribes 
that he included a dictionary appendix of English words and phrases in Inuit. In this regard, Hanbury's account matches the others regarding the best way to survive harsh and crueling terrain, including trying to paddle across a lake that was still frozen in July. It's not by going solo, sulking under your tree, or beating your chest and howling at the moon. It's by making friends with the people who live there. For years and decades and centuries. If McCandless had bothered to learn from Alaskans, who'd grown up in the backwoods, he might have lived to write his own book about his adventures. So that's interesting. That's a good point. You know, anyone who's out there who uh, is looking, I mean, nowadays, I guess, it's not too difficult to do research on the internet, but, you know, if anyone's looking to learn and hunting and learn something somewhere about some other area, best thing to do is talk to the folks that are there. You know, I we hunt in Texas a lot, but I, I've always been interested in learning and going other places and learning the, uh, the things about what hunting is like, what food preparation is like in those other areas. So continuing, choose your location. Hanbury had the good sense to be humble. He called himself a traveler, knowing full well that the Inuit and other peoples had lived in the Arctic Circle for thousands of years and weren't impressed by him. There are more than a few lessons in his adventure, not the least of which is this. All hunting is local, and the plants and animals got there long before you. So did a lot of, so did a lot of people who think living without gas or electricity is normal. Hunting begins and ends with the land. The wild animal is part of the land, bound and obedient to nature's laws. The kind of hunters who write books about the experience are usually just visiting, and not in the metaphysical, we're all just guests of Mother Earth kind of way, but as shiny strangers in a new place. Hanbury called the hunting he was doing sport because he arrived in North America knowing that he was going to leave. A 20-month trip seems long to us, but it wasn't long to him. He and his group practice a 19th century version of eating fast food on the road, prioritizing speed and convenience, filling empty stomachs while anticipating there would be a place to grab food when they got hungry again. They selected their meals based on the wildlife that was immediately present, making do with parmigans and hand instead of holding out for more familiar fare like pigeons. The wear of their journey determined what they ate. Hanbury hunted deer when herds were handy, because he knew what to expect, how to dress it out, how to prep it for supper, and more or less how it would taste. He also hunted and fished everything else that came within range, including hares and birds. At one point, he scavenged a deer carcass, half eaten by a predator. He began by accepting the land's non-negotiable conditions, which included feeding himself based on what was already there, rather than expecting to change it to suit his tastes. This is not to say that the Hudson's Bay Company was full of bleeding heart environmentalists, counting butterflies and measuring tree rings. It was a bunch of profit-minded fur traders who took over great chunks of Canada so it could exploit the natural resources. But on the individual plane, Hanbury and his group hunted for food, and his comments reveal a certain wonder at the unfamiliar ease of that undertaking in the great northern woods. Hanbury's catches you catch-as-catch-can approach to provisioning must be fully appreciated, as it's alien, alien to current sensibilities where breakfast, lunch, and supper not only correspond to dawn, noon, and sunset, but are coordinated to the institutionalized schedules of the school day and the workplace. 
Nowadays, it's common to refer to snacking throughout the day as grazing, as if M&Ms plucked randomly from glass candy dishes is akin to a ruminant grazing on grass. What is far more natural is food insecurity. When is the next bit of nutritional energy coming? From nut, seed, or bug? To hunt and forage from a platform of uncertainty is the opposite of grocery shopping and trophy hunting, both of which affirm political and economic power over another country's natural resources. As an extension of colonialist practices, 19th century British big game hunters would travel to India with the express purpose of hunting tigers, elephants, and other large animals not present on English country estates. Instead of staying long enough to study the animals and learn the terrain, they would hire local guides who possess this intimate information. Today, guided hunting persists because of the scarcity principle, chiefly lack of time. In an hourly, hourly rate world, ordinary, ordinary people can't afford to devote years to studying the wildlife and scouting for signs, and so pay others to guide them into unfamiliar terrains. These opportunities are not cheap. I recently advertised week-long guided caribou hunt in Ontario. Nothing fancy, just basic cabins and fireplace food. Costs $8,000, American dollars, not including air for or secondary tags for small game. Regular people save up years for the opportunity because of the sums involved. This kind of focus transforms the animal into a fetish. By contrast, subsistence hunting focuses on transforming the carcass into venison. Land-based hunting is characterized by generational hunting, and often on tribal or family land. It is also not only regional, but local in the most literal sense, or practiced inside a locality that imposes its conditions on you, in a manner of frozen ground or arid sand. Yelling at the snow doesn't make it stop falling, and crying in the desert won't make grass grow. Polar bears don't thrive in Florida, and reindeer can't survive in France. In the United States, one of the most adaptable species happens to be white-tailed deer, which thrive in grasslands, forests, cold, warm, cold weather, warm weather, and they love living in the suburbs. But they are so attached to cornfields that the Total Deer Hunting Manual, by the editors of Field and Stream, designated farmland as a habitat. In brief, certain, general, certain generalizations can be made about best hunting practices for your region, but the details that spell success can only come from someone who spent a long time studying the quarry as a living extension of the particular parcel of land you're hunting. Consider then that you'd like to practice traditional hunting and you've decided to focus on deer for the purchase of putting meat on the table. I think that's a, that describes a lot of us here. Perhaps you're also hunting in order to improve self-sufficiency to obtain quality meat or simply want to master a traditional skill. How exactly to go about starting? Given that we need guidebooks to shop for veg fresh vegetables on store shelves, what happens when there's no store and the meat section refuses, refuses to stand still? The first challenge for new hunters is access to land where wildlife can be legally hunted. Luckily, those of us in Texas, there's a lot, somewhat, a lot of private land and public hunting land to where if, if you're uh, just a little bit uh, resourceful, you can find a place. That'll take you. Bambi may be munching on your blueberry bushes every night, but no, you cannot shoot him, even assuming that is deer season, and you're licensed to hunt with a tag for the season and have a loaded shotgun handy. Hunting is banned in the suburbs because there are too many obstacles getting in the way. 
Hence, the first hunt that hunters must undertake is one for hunting ground where there are no houses, no dogs, and no humans. Wildlife lives in the woods, in the wild. It also wanders into backyards, but proximity to human residences means it's off limits to hunting. The lay of the land not only determines if hunting is legal in your town, county, state, region, country, continent in the first place, but also di dictates what kind of hunting can be practiced and which genre of weapons can be used. Bow hunting versus shotgun versus rifle versus muzzleloader is not only a personal preference, but also contingent on the neighborhood, the terrain, and their seasons. Legal restrictions cast different light on the American deer population statistics, for it's often stated that they've rebounded to about the same numbers as they were during colonial times. However, large numbers of these deer are crowding into the Northeast Corridor. They are so populous and regionally distinct that they constitute their own subgroup, called the Northern Whitetail. This portion of the United States is prime residential and urban real estate, and broth swaths of these areas are not huntable because there are too many humans getting in the way. When the deer are hanging out at the mall, they're not game. They're loiterers, and so the police are called to shoo them away. In other words, the deer are crowding into areas where hunters cannot hunt. It seems that deer, too, enjoy the amenities of living in a community where there's good roads, clean water, and lots of easily accessible food. Thus, while it seems to non-hunters as if getting a deer is as simple as throwing a rocket one, hunters have to go where people are not. The problem of accessing huntable land is rarely mentioned in books about hunting. Nonetheless, it's an increasing challenge for hunters of all kinds. American dreamer McCandless went to Alaska. Danish Baroness Denison traveled to Africa. And British explorer Hanbury traveled to northern Canada in the Arctic Circle. In other words, all of them were hunting so far from their own backyards that they ended up hunkering down in different time zones. If you're an ordinary person with a job, or even half a job, where do you go to hunt if your family doesn't own a forest? Writes Joel, Joel McCharles of the Canadian website and blog wellpreserved.ca. If you want to learn to hunt and don't know anyone here in Ontario who has, there are significant barriers to enter that are largely divided into cost, knowledge, and access. These three things are inseparable from each other. If you don't have knowledge or access to land, he notes, your cost of entry is going to be massive, like, say, $8,000, which I consider a lot of money, even if the takeaway is a couple hundred pounds of caribou meat. From the standpoint of time and money, those trips are unsustainable. In order to hunt deer, in other words, the first step is to hunt for a place free of humans but full of wildlife. Where you go is entirely dependent on your region, your free time, your budget, your age, stamina, and fitness. The first resource is to check out U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife, which will direct you to public lands where deer hunting is permitted during hunting season. Whitetail hunting is not year-round. In the United Kingdom, by contrast, its six species are hunted at different times of the year. There's no one place to hunt, and every train is distinct. Patches of forest can tuck into corners of developed land, and deer can live in areas surrounded by skyscrapers. Increasingly difficult to access, the wild is both a place and a concept, both of which are increasingly remote from everyday experience. More than anything else, however, hunting for venison is a mindset. It's not that the opportunities aren't there, it's that you have to view the land as your food source, which means putting yourself in the deer's place by following its paths. The land, the deer, the hunter, in that order. Reverse it, and it's not hunting. It's farming. All right, folks. Well, that's interesting. The discussion between hunting versus farming versus harvesting. I'm not sure what you guys think about what they said there. Uh, 
I personally hunt because I enjoy the sport. I enjoy the shooting. I, however, really mainly enjoy the meat and the ability to, you know, dress dress an animal and take all take the meat, take the different pieces, and not only experiment with different recipes, but also you know, follow good recipes and enjoy that meal because when I sit down and I cut into that tenderloin or I cook that heart, I know that it was me who put in the effort to get that, to get that meat and get that animal. And I know where it came from and I know it was eating what it was eating on, you know, as opposed to going to the grocery store and getting, uh, you know, some meat off the shelf and really not knowing exactly, you know, who touched it or what it went through, you know. Because you could, you could think about it and figure that out just cat, just as the guy who we talked about did, you know, tracing the meat from, you know, your fork to where it started. But I don't know. There's just something about, you know, eating that animal that you, you took, you know, yourself. So anyway, that, that was pretty interesting. Uh, I'd like to know what you guys think. If, if this, uh, this book and this, these comments are uh, of interest to you. We continue to keep going down this path and very soon get into more of the meat about it, so to speak, uh, pun intended, uh, about uh, how to really take care of our, our venison once we once we harvest it. So we're getting there. So stick with us. And I just want to say really appreciate all you listeners out there and, and greatly appreciate all the new listeners of the Feed Bandit podcast. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, if you're not on our email list, please Go to feedbandit.com and join that. And if you have some friends that you think might be interested in the podcast, uh, please let them know about it. We'd really appreciate it. So with that, I think I will leave you guys. Uh, This one kind of went longer than normal. So uh, thanks again for listening all the way to the end. I wish you continued luck throughout the rest of the deer season, duck season. That's some turkey season going on and, Uh, I'll have a little uh, winter dove season uh, coming back. So good luck with all that. And uh, let us know how you're doing. Howdy at feedbandit.com. Really appreciate it. Uh, So with that, you take care. Thanks for listening to the Feed Bandit podcast. If you like what we discuss on the show, be sure to sign up to our email list to get even more killer hunting ideas, tips, tricks, and exclusive deals on innovative hunting gear and services delivered straight to your inbox. Sign up over at FeedBandit.com or simply by texting the word BANDIT to 33777. See you on the next one. And remember, support your local feed store.